Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Here's something that I think is true of us. Um, no matter who we are, and we, we all possess this thing to various degrees, we all want to um, be part of something bigger, make, give our lives and, and be involved in something that is bigger than us, be part of a, a bigger story, um, to, to make a mark in the world, to, to have been in the world and have someone know that we were there and that, that they care that we were there, like we want to leave some sort of legacy. Now, some of that, if you're very cynical, this, this sounds like a graduation speech that you give to college graduates, right? Like, go leave your mark and, and, and make an impact, and you can do it, and you can be whatever you want to be. And I get that, and we can be very cynical about that kind of language. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's still true. We still want to be a part of something. We want to have an impact that goes beyond just ourselves and, and, and the life that we have. Um, and, I, and I think you see it show up all over the place. This is why people give themselves to causes like saving the earth and, and get into like, oh, there's a climate crisis and we need to take care of that because we want to make an impact in something big. This is why, this is why the, 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 the different protests and rioting that you've seen over the last couple of years is why a lot of that happens because we want to be part of a bigger movement of something. We want to have our moment in our generation, that kind of thing. Uh, this is why people, you know, become vegans or CrossFit, do CrossFit or something. It's like, I want to be part of something that matters. I want to save something, be in something, be part of this bigger story. Um, I think we all have that to some degree. Maybe you have it a lot, maybe you have it a little bit, but we all have some, something like that. And, and so today I want to talk about the idea that there is a bigger story that we can live into. And I want us to look and finish up, we've been reading through the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, and I want us to finish that story up and see the bigger story that's in it. Because throughout this series, we've been kind of looking at, well, you know, where is God in our circumstances? Where does God show up? And I want us to see, as we wrap this thing up, where did God show up? And, and what does it matter? And what is the bigger story that this story tells us? Because in one sense, this is a story of a, a, a young woman and, and, and a, a widow and, and, and all this stuff in the ancient world. But in another story, it's, it's, it, in another sense, it tells something about our story as well. Uh, this is four weeks. We've, there's four chapters to this book. It's very clean and easy to do. Uh, I'm going to jump into the fourth chapter. Let me just summarize the first three very quickly in case you've missed it the last three weeks. And if you have missed it, go back and watch those on YouTube or on podcast um, to just catch up with how it, how it went. But very quickly, I'll say it this way. Uh, there's a woman named Naomi. She moves with her two sons and her husband out of Israel to the land of Moab. While she's there, her, both of her sons die and her husband dies, and she is left with two daughters-in-law. She decides to move back to Israel, to Bethlehem, to be with her people. As she does that, one daughter-in-law named Orpah, she decides to leave and go back to Moab. Uh, but one daughter-in-law named Ruth sticks with her in a very strong, powerful scene of commitment. Ruth says, I'm with you no matter what. And Ruth sticks with Naomi. They move to Israel. Now, Ruth is living not among her people. She's living in a foreign land. She's an outsider in Bethlehem amongst the Israelite people. And while she's there, she goes to gather wheat. She meets a man named Boaz. Boaz is a landowner who has this wheat and happens to be a distant relative of the family, and Boaz um, 
they, they kind of meet and they hit it off pretty well. Uh, Naomi sees this as an opportunity for Ruth and, to, and says to her daughter-in-law, you need to go basically get yourself in front of Boaz so he notices you and maybe he will marry you and in doing so he will care for you and our family. So Ruth goes to Boaz while he's finished harvesting on the threshing floor. This is where we talked about this last week. She goes to see him in the middle of the night. Um, they have a conversation where Boaz agrees, I will marry you and take you into my family. There's only one thing that stands in the way of this happening. There is someone else who would be first in line to marry Ruth, um, a concept in the ancient world and in Israel called the kinsman redeemer. So basically the way this works is that if a woman, had, uh, her husband died and she's widowed, there are family members that are in line who are supposed to marry her. That sounds weird to us. I know it's got all the, the, the patriarchy. This is the ancient world in a very foreign culture to us. Just understand that what they're doing is trying to care for um, women in this society. Like, they, they, don't, they can't have passive income working from home. Um, they're not going to just work online and whatever. Like, it is a difficult, harsh environment in the ancient world. And so uh, one of the arrangements in Israel and other nations had something similar, is that you would care for women by if a woman was left widowed or had no husband or, or sons to take care of her, uh, there would be another family member who would come along and marry her and bring them into the family and care for them. So this is the way it was set up. And so Boaz points out, yes, Ruth, I will marry you, but there's someone else who actually is supposed to marry you first. They, it, it's kind of their obligation to do it, so we need to talk to that person first before this whole thing gets finished. So we're all like, if you're following along this story, we're all cheering for this to, to go down. Like, Boaz has got to marry Ruth, right? This is the way this ends. They're going to get together. But wait, there's this other guy who's in the way, you know? Like, Ruth is like, you know, she's the big shot lawyer who moves to the small town for, for holiday break, and she left her big shot lawyer boyfriend back in New York, and it's like, but she meets the guy in the flannel who runs the little hardware store in the small town. Like, you see, you know this story, right? She, she meets this guy, and, and then, but, you're like, but all along you're like, but what about her, her lawyer boyfriend back in New York? Like, he's got to get out of the picture. We got to get him out. Well, there's this guy, and we got to get him out of the picture here if this thing's going to end in this, in this happy so she can marry, you know, Flannel Boaz uh, here. I, that just came to me. I'm telling you, I did not write that in. That's that just the thing. All right, so uh, let, let's read Ruth chapter 4, starting with verse 1. We'll read through it. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Don't you love it when things work out that way? He goes up to the town gate. In that culture, the town gate is where you're going to have um, some of the leaders of, of the city are going to come together and talk about what's going on in the town and, and, and try to make decisions that affect the good of the town, sort of city council kind of idea, but maybe more religious than that. So they're coming together. And so you would go there. It would be a meeting place. You'd talk. And so... Boaz goes there, and behold, this guy happens to be walking by who is uh, the, the, the rightful kinsman redeemer. This is the guy that Boaz mentioned that should marry Ruth. And this seems like a coincidence. Um, well, weird. It's weird. Behold, that guy happened to be walking by. But I just want you to know um, or notice that in this book, there's an awful lot of coincidences for them to be coincidence. You know, it's... It, 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 it's a coincidence that Ruth happened to be working in the field of Boaz 
where he's, and he happens to be connected and someone who could provide for it. It's just a coincidence that happened. It's a, you know, it, it, there's these, all these moments when Naomi's down that Ruth happens to really speak up and lift her spirits. That just happened. And here Boaz is needing to talk to this kinsman redeemer guy, and he just happens to be walking by. And um, I think it's a good reminder to us that the Lord is at work behind the scenes. The things that, a lot of things that we might call coincidences are God showing up and doing something. It's in the shadows, it's in behind the scenes, you know, um, but he's doing something. And that's true in their day, it's true in our lives as well. Um, and, 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 and so this guy shows up, and interestingly, he says, um, Boaz refers to him as friend. The other translations will say, my friend, my friend, my friend, come sit here, come sit. Um, that's interesting because in Hebrew, we don't pick this up in English, but in Hebrew, um, what he's actually calling the guy, um, he uses this phrase, Polonai Almonai. And basically, it's like the Hebrew version of Joe Schmo. Because it rhymes. It's got this rhyming thing going on. So he sees this guy who henceforth will be known as Joe Schmo. Like we don't even get his actual name in this. He's just that guy. So he's this guy who shows up um, Joe Schmo shows up, and uh, it's not going to be about him, right? He's sort of a, a non-player character here. He's sort of an NPC in this whole story. But he's going to show up, and, uh, and Boaz is going to talk to him. So they have this conversation, verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, again, doesn't get a name, right? Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz pitches this thing to, to Joe Schmo as, as it is a land deal. Now, there's all, okay, ancient patriarchy, okay, and, and understanding how uh, land ownership passes through typically male heirs. When there are none, it goes to the female. And so you've got Naomi, this widow woman, with her husband's land. So there is land at play here. Land also equals wealth and prosperity and all that kind of stuff. So all of those things are in the background. But Boaz pitches it to this guy as a land deal and says, look, there's this land, you, you know Naomi, she's back in town, um, and she's here, and um, look what happened. Her husband's gone, she, just ha she doesn't have any sons to take care of her, so she has this land, and you are the person who's in line to, uh, to get that and to take care of that and, 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 and have the land. And so this guy um, is like, yeah, I'll do that. Um, because how is it pitched to him? It's a land deal. It's, it's something that will give him land and wealth. And so he's like, hey, do you want to get more land and wealth? And the guy's like, sure, I'll do that. Like, great, I'll, I'll work that out. I'm, you know, sort of like, I'm happy to help if you're, if you're talking about getting me, getting me this stuff. And so um, he's all about it. Well, then the rest of the story, verse 5. Um, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, 
the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay, the land comes with a person. He left that detail out at first. He says, oh, by the way, there's Ruth. She's a Moabite. You've probably seen her around town. She looks like a foreigner or whatever. If you take this land, you will also have her. And then he starts talking about the dead and the widow of the dead and that kind of thing. This was an idea in, in their culture that, that your name, and I think we have it in our culture to somewhat, to some degree, but your name matters and your legacy of that matters and who you are and your name living on. We are from this family and we, we settled in this land, you know, that kind of thing. We do that less in our culture, but we still have some of that. Maybe the, one of the best ways I can explain it to you is um, if you're familiar with the Mexican uh, culture idea, and this, in, in some parts of Mexico they have this, this idea that, that people die three times. You die first when you realize you're going to die, which for us happens pretty young. You have this moment of I'm not going to be here one day, right? So that's the first death. The second death is when you actually die, as in stop breathing. And then the third death is when the last relative who is alive says your name. At some point, no one will ever speak of you again. <laughs> Have a good Sunday. See you. <laughs> you know, like, it's like real depressing. But at some point, right, no one is going to say your name on earth ever again. And that is the third death, right? This is actually a prominent theme in the movie Coco, if you've seen the Pixar movie. Um, by far one of my least favorite Pixar movies because I am cold and heartless. Um, but that, that's, there it is. That's, that's kind of a theme there at some point. And, and so that's a little bit like what they've got going on here is, hey, Mary, Mary Ruth, it's not just the land, it's Ruth, because you perpetuate the family. This is, this is sort of implied like, and have children with her, and, and perpetuate the family line of, of these people who have died, um, it's important that they, that they're, in a, in a sense, that their legacy continues on. So that's kind of what he pitches to this guy. Uh, and then, and, and suddenly, uh, Joe Schmo gets cold feet on the idea. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, um, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So when it was about land and money, he was in. When it was about people and, and legacy and, and, and what you pass on to the next generation and all of that, he's not, he's not in. Um, he, 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 it's a deal breaker because of financial concerns. Because he's like, if I have other heirs, then my money's going to be spread through those people. This is a problem. Um, and I think there's a lesson for that, and we've heard this said in modern ways, I suppose, but it's, it's kind of that lesson of the best things in life are not things. It's not about the stuff. It's really about the relationships. What makes us wealthy is not money. It is the relationships that we have and, and, and who you are when you are with other people. And so what does it look like to prioritize the relationship First, Joe Schmo is in this for the money first, not the relationships. And so let's see where this goes. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right, first of all, there's this weird thing with sandals. They take off a shoe. All right, here's a shoe. We're not... It's weird. They don't have lawyers. They have shoes. You, you go with what you got. And this is, it, was, it was a simpler time. This is how you worked it out. Okay, here's my sandal. That is transferring a way of saying I'm transferring ownership here to you or, or you, this is your now your, your thing to do. They used footwear. And then they gave um, this blessing that the, the leaders of the community looked at him and, and said, you know, may God bless you. May the Lord make this fruitful, this marriage, uh, may great things come out of this, and even refers back to historical people in the history of Israel, great people, and say, this is going to be an incredible thing, Um, which is really cool, and it's really a sign that the community has accepted Ruth, who's very much an outsider, right, a foreigner, and in an an age and era where ethnic purity would matter, you know, and these outsiders were supposed to stay separate from those people, they have really accepted Ruth, and she has um, won her, ingratiated herself with, with all of these folks. And so they, they, they bless uh, Boaz and they pray for his offspring and the family legacy. Um, and then they get married, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. All right, so you have this Bible sort of euphemism for sex and then pregnancy that results and it is, uh, and, and why does she get pregnant? Well, it says specifically, the Lord gave her conception. Because Ruth had been married for 10 years prior, for a long time, she had been married to Naomi's son and never, was never able to get pregnant at that time. Um, but this time, she gets pregnant. And it, it definitely says the Lord gave her conception. And so, again, uh, what would be a very natural physical process of people having babies and that kind of thing, God is given credit here, and it, it is his hands at work in, in the background. And then it says, uh, you know, you're given this redeemer, You've, you now have a son, um, this is going to be a blessing to you in your old age. The, the women sort of gather around Naomi, and they're like, this is incredible. But the real blessing of the real the thing that they see as being so great in this entire situation is not just that Naomi now has a grandson, but it's actually Ruth. Like, Ruth is the one 
who, who was the game changer here. And they even say to her, she's worth more to you than seven sons. Seven sons in that culture was considered to be like the ideal size family because you had seven boys that would definitely take care of you. And in an age when people died young or some, a lot of people don't survive childhood and all that kind of thing, uh, you, you needed uh, from a numbers game, you, you want lots of sons in case some of them die. Like it sounds cold and harsh, but that is the reality of the world in that time. And so you want multiple sons so they can take care of you and they can, they can handle and they can be strong and they can protect and all that kind of thing. And so the ideal family would be seven sons. And these women come to her and say, Ruth is worth more to you than seven sons. She has been an incredible blessing to you. And then they name, um, they name her son Obed, or which is a shortened version of Obadiah, which means the one who serves. And so they give, they give this name. They name her, which is really weird for us, right? Can you imagine the village, the whole community naming your kid? In our culture, we'd be like, uh, no, like step off. I'm going to, I get to pick the name. Like, but that was, you know, a, a thing that would sometimes happen. These people all came around and they named o- o- Obed, um, the one who serves. Um, and it, it's like the book kind of wraps up with this happily ever after. You've got uh, Naomi there nursing this, this baby. Um, and and, and it, it's, it's an incredible picture of, of Naomi who starts the first few verses of the book losing everything and, and losing her her, her sons and losing her husband. And then at the end, you see her holding her grandchild. And it's a beautiful picture of, of moving from this emptiness to, to fullness. It's an incredible picture of, of God's restoration as he is making something out of nothing. Now, there's lots of ways we could talk about this. There's People have written of all these sort of theological ideas over the years, comparing Ruth to different characters in the scripture and these different themes that we could pull out. And we don't have time to chase down every single one of those, but I want to point out a couple ideas to you that I think we can take from chapter four and really from this whole book that I want us to remember. Number one is this. God is ultimately in control. God is ultimately in control. We started this series talking about, are we a victim of circumstance? Is it just that everything just happens to us and and it's just dumb luck or bad luck or whatever? Or is God doing things in the background? And I would say, yeah, God is doing things in the background. This, This book is a reminder of that. He's always at work, and the New Testament reminds us he is always working things for our good. That doesn't mean he's always giving us our desires, doesn't mean he's always working towards our preferences, but he is always working towards our good. And that, now, this, this story has a happy ending. Not all of them will. The way I try to look at it, and this is kind of over the years as I've interacted with this story or with my own lives or the lives of people around me, I guess I, I would say it this way. Um, when good things happen... They are a blessing from God, and we should thank him. And you see the people in this story thanking God and honoring God. We should practice gratitude and say, man, this worked out. This job worked out. This relationship worked out. This thing worked out with my kid. This thing worked out in my career. Like, whatever. When there are blessings, give thanks to God. Give gratitude that he is doing something in your lives, uh, that God has ordered the world and he's made it good, and, and we can practice gratitude for what he has done. But there's another side. What about when bad things happen? It's, it seems disingenuous to give God the credit for the good 
but not also the blame for the bad, right? It seems like that would make sense. Oh, this terrible thing, this tragedy happened. Why is God punishing me? And, and to be fair, some people blame God for all the bad too, right? Personally, when you're hurting, you're like, God is punishing me and this is terrible. Or, um, you know, a, a hurricane hits and, and somebody will come out, some religious person will come out on TV and be like, this is God punishing the town of whatever's town's about to get hit by a hurricane and saying, because they're doing X, Y, and Z. This is God punishing a, a hurricane, a tornado, a virus, a natural disaster. Um, God brought this to punish us. And to be fair, God does do some of those things, especially in the Old Testament. He does say, I'm going to punish Israel, and I'm going to bring in this other army, and they're going to wipe you out. That's a bad look. You know, if you're, if you're Israel, you're like, we're getting wiped out by another army. Thanks, God. And God's like, well, you guys don't listen, and, and you, need, you, need to, you need to stop doing the wicked things you're doing. And so I'm going to, so, so God has used some, some rough stuff to discipline and, and punish. But I don't think that means when anything bad happens, we have to necessarily conclude that God caused it. Um, I think the natural world runs as it does, and I don't think God has to intervene and send a virus or send a hurricane or anything like that. Um, I, I, I just also think that the most we can conclude there is that when bad things happen, God did not cause them. Some things are a, a, a result of sin and the brokenness of humanity and Satan who wants to destroy us. At most, we could say God allowed those things to happen. Um, and I think that even in the stuff that God allows to happen, even the stuff that's hard and bad and painful, um, God can still work in those things. And he can still grow something in us and develop us and change us. Um, even in the hard stuff, or the worst circumstances. Naomi going to Moab and losing her husband and children, she probably felt like she was in hell. And God moved her and, and did something. Ruth going, losing her husband and going with her mother-in-law to live in a foreign country, probably at some point and, and struggling for food and all that, she probably felt like she was in hell. And yet God was doing his work, making the crooked lines straight which is what he does. So, so this is a reminder that God is in control and he makes something out of nothing. He specializes in that. Number two is this. Instead of praying that God will take you out of the problem, ask God to send you a Ruth. God does work through the hands and feet of his people. When we show up for one another, when we bring a prayer, an encouragement, a blessing, and we ask God to intervene, when we pray for people who are struggling, when we are there, when we, you know, uh, hey, here's, here's 50 bucks, I know you're in need of this thing, and let me help you out, or whatever. Like, when we do things for one another, God works through that, and that is part of his care for his people. Um, God shows up for people in this whole story through other people. Naomi is bitter, so bitter she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. And in that moment when she's at the lowest of lows, Ruth shows up and says the most beautiful speech in the whole book, your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Ruth shows up to Naomi in this, with this powerful commitment. I am there for you. I am with you in this. And Naomi's speechless. I, whoa, I, I don't know what to do. At, at the moment she's low, Ruth shows up. 
And Ruth is low. She's having to go work the fields and try to gather whatever food scraps have fallen on the ground to try to feed her and Naomi. And in the moment that she's feeling that, Boaz shows up. And they meet, and, and there's a prayer of blessing. And, and, and Ruth's like, why don't you answer your own prayer and marry me? You know, that kind of thing. Like, there's this, this cool thing that happens. Um, maybe our prayers sh- should be, not God remove me from the hard times, but God send someone who can walk with me in, in this moment. I, I feel that. I've needed that. I've been, uh, I've been in ministry working in churches for 20-something years, and I've been at this church for 14 years. And there have been times I wanted to quit, even in this church, which I, I along with a group of people, started this church so it's weird to feel like, you know, I can't come home and be like, that church drive me crazy. It's like, well, you started it. Like, it's your stupid fault. Like, whatever, you know, there have been times I want to quit. Like, it's, I'm, I, I've been over it, frustrated, um, hurt, um, struggling. And I wish I could tell you that in some moment that I wanted to quit that God appeared to me in a whisper and said, Chris, you just got to hang in there. God has not done that to me in 14 years. What God has done is brought my friend Carl, who is another pastor in Maryland who planted a church the week before we launched this one. And Carl over the years has said to me, Chris, dude, no, stick with this, stick it out. Stand up, go back to it, work again at this, and God will be faithful. And that has been God's care for me and challenge of me through my friend Carl. Through his counsel, I have experienced the faithfulness of God. So maybe, maybe what we need is not God to remove us from the problem, but for God to send a Ruth or a Boaz or someone to, to walk alongside. And maybe we can pray for that. God, send someone to walk with me in this moment. And then lastly, this. Number three, focus on the bigger story. Um, this is a story of a particular group of people in time, right? This is Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and, these ver- and this Joe Schmo and these various people who lived a long time ago in history, about that 1100 B.C., something like that. And that could be um, uh, unremarkable. But I, but I think the story actually points to some bigger things going on. Um, There's a concept of a kinsman redeemer. Everybody has pointed this out. They're like, this is foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes along and purchases us with his blood. He dies for us. He's the one who looks at us as we are outsiders, and he brings us into the family. Even in the history of Israel, the Israelites would have believed that God is only for Israel, in a sense that they're his people. And Ruth is a foreigner in this story. She's an outsider. This is foreshadowing all of what's going to happen with Jesus, that, that the outsiders, the Gentiles, are going to be invited into the community, which is what almost all of us are. We are outsiders who have been invited, and we've been adopted, and we'll talk more about that next week. We've been adopted into the family of God, and it's a powerful thing. And so that's going on in, in the background of the story. Um, this, is, this, this is, in some ways, our story of coming to God. Um, and, and there's all these Jesus elements. Where does the story mostly take place? Bethlehem. Have you heard of that before? It's a big deal. And the very last line of the book, that, right after where we finished, 
It goes into a little genealogy and lists the names of generations because family lineage matters. And it ends with David, King David, that David. David and Bathsheba, David, like, had, had some rough times. But th- this grand king of Israel comes out of the bloodline that is now from Boaz and Ruth. And then in Matthew chapter 1, when we read about Jesus and his whole family tree, who's listed in there? Ruth, one of five women named in this entire bloodline. So all of, all of the bloodline that leads through royalty, that leads through King David and Solomon and all this stuff, all of this ends or leads up to Jesus. And so there's this, so yeah, they're an isolated little story in a little town in, in, in Israel a couple thousand years ago, but there's something much bigger going on. And I want us to remember this, that God is doing something in the world bigger than us, and he invites us to join him um, in that. We are sinful people, and we have messed things up, but he invites you and me to be part of the family And he asks us to invite others to be part of the family, to reach out to those who are lost. Um, And and I think we have an opportunity here to tell a bigger story because I think we are in, as a a culture, in America in, in 2022, I think we are very much in a crisis of meaning and purpose. There's all sorts of loneliness epidemic and there's pandemics and there's all the demics and there's lots of things going on out there and there's financial crisis and there's lots of there's so many things called crisis it's hard to keep up with what's a crisis but I but I do think if you look underneath the surface on a lot of these things you're going to find a lack of purpose and a lack of meaning and we are we are starving to to find something meaningful Um, we send kids off to college and we send them off with no vision except to be them, you know, find your true self or something like that, which is so difficult. We, we, we send them with no vision of life grander or with more purpose than the self. There's no grand story. And I think as a culture, we're paying the price for when we have no vision for people, when there's nothing there. Uh, I found this quote, I actually found this quote on January 3rd of 2021. I don't know where the quote comes from, but it January 6th happened, I thought of this quote then, but really this quote could have applied to a lot of things that had happened in our country um, over the years. Uh, Listen to this, it says this, young men need something virtuous to give their lives or loyalty to. When they don't have it or when they're taught it doesn't exist, they will give their lives and loyalty to something that destroys them and others. I know that says young men, it it could apply to women also, men, Un, undirected can be violent and, and, and break things in, in some horrible ways. And I, and I think there's something to that. We, we need a bigger story to give our lives and our loyalty to. And when as a culture, as, a, as an entire country, we, we tell people there is nothing to give your life to really. There's no, nothing worth. It's all just for you to decide. This is going to cause a lot of problems. And it is causing a lot of problems. Um, this is not going to, to go well. Um, life is not just what we make it. Uh, we don't arrive in this world as a blank slate. There is meaning built in. God has created and ordered the world and ordered mankind, and you are born into a group of people. You, it, there's, there's meaning baked into the story before you ever showed up. It's not all what you just decide it is. So we need to, 
recognize that, that God um, is at work here and focus on his bigger story. Um, but I also want you to think about not just God's bigger story and our part in it, but lastly, just think about it this way. Um, you have a bigger story of your life, and your life tells a bigger story. And, and think about that, and don't just think about, we get so caught up in the, I've got to pay rent, and, and I've got to, well, hopefully I get that job, and I'm going to ask her out, and I hope that works out, and all of those things. Those are all necessary things and important things. But think about the bigger story. Joe Schmo thought in, our, in Ruth 4, Joe Schmo thought money and not legacy. He didn't really think about where this could go. He thought, or maybe he did, and he just saw it all as a negative. It was very short-sighted on his part. We are all part of God's story, but consider that you will leave a legacy, that you will leave a mark. Um, when, when you're gone, the impact you had on the world will, will be there. Maybe that's through children. That's not going to be for everybody, but maybe that's through children. Think about the character that you pass on to the people who come behind you. When we talk about legacy in our culture today, so often we talk about that in terms of money. That's your financial legacy, right? We think, oh, what kind of money are you leaving to the people who come after you? And that's something to think about, but it's just a thing. It's not everything. Think more about what kind of character you leave. I have a friend who likes to say to me, character is, is what you leave in your wake. So when you leave the room, what your character is, how the impression that you had on, on everyone. So think of character in your dating, in your parenting, in your um, at work. Uh, think of what legacy are you leaving and, 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 and how do you cultivate your character. Um, I sit with a lot of couples in premarital counseling, and one of the things we do in premarital counseling is to draw out your family tree. And so... It's interesting to sit with couples who are coming together and like, oh, my grandfather was like this, and here's my grandmother, and then my uncles are like this, and here are my cousins, and they kind of talk through that. And you hear a lot of, you know, my grandfather was an alcoholic, and this was, had an effect here, here, and here, and, and, and my, my grandmother had these issues, and this was going on here, and then my dad was like this, and this was really hard in the home, and all of that kind of stuff. And then you also hear some good stuff. My grandma is the one who always took us to church, no matter what. And so I always grew up, you know, kind of going with her to church, and I, I think that's partly why I'm a, a follower of Jesus today is, is what she did. Um, this kind of stuff matters for generations. And we have a hard time thinking past, like, next week. But think about the years, even beyond when you're gone. Um, your character matters, so make it count. Boaz and Ruth had character. And you see that in the way they interact in, this, in these four chapters. And it mattered beyond generations. We're still talking about what they did thousands of years later. So if you're not a Christian today, um, the challenge is this. Uh, get baptized. Give your life to Christ. Become a Christ follower. Um, be part of this bigger story that we're engaged in here. And, and make an impact Understand who you are in relation to God and, and then start making an impact on the world because of that. And if you are a Christian, um, I want to challenge you to commit to being a person of godly character. This is not easy. Um, I have, <laughs> you know, people are like, oh, you know, live with no regrets. I have regrets. 
I'm not one of those like, I'm just going to live with no regrets. I have regrets for things I've done, things I've said, um, the, way I, the way I've treated people. Um, there, are, there are stories and there's just stuff where you're just like, oh, dang it. I really blew that. Um, and I wish, I wish I'd focused more on, on some character building 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But I can't change that, but I can do something different today. And that would be my challenge to all of us who are making a commitment to, who have made a commitment to follow Jesus. Be the person of godly character um, because that's going to be your legacy. And, and, and if you wish you had done it 10 years ago, yeah, I get that. But do it today. Um, next week and the week after, the next two Sundays, we're done with Ruth. We're going to do two messages that are sort of one-off conversations. But both of them are things to help us think about ways we can leave a mark and leave a legacy. And that will lead us into Advent, and we're going to have some opportunities there as well. So I'm excited for what's going to come. But, um, yeah, be, be, a, be a person of, of godly character. And uh, in, in doing that, we become like the people we read about, like Boaz and Ruth. Let's pray. Lord, the legacy of Ruth is one of commitment and loyalty and standing, um, standing beside people even when they're hurting and doing the right thing and, um, and caring for people who are in distress and are hurting. And because all those things came together and because your hands were in it, we, we get to learn from it and still talk about it today. God, may we, from this story, be more welcoming to the foreigner, be more um, loving to the widow, be more um, supportive of those who are hurting, be more aware of that. May we be um, people of character who grow and are becoming more like Christ because of what we read here. God, thank you for Jesus being our kinsman redeemer who, uh, who pays the price for our sin. Uh, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.